This is The Guardian. We're at a frightening point in international politics at the moment with several conflicts in the Middle East. And in the UK, our government is talking about the need to increase the defence budget. The era of the peace dividend is over. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak's Rwanda bill has been voted through the Commons, but at what cost for his deeply divided party? His former Home Secretary says the plan won't work. His current Home Secretary calls it batshit. Even the Prime Minister himself doesn't believe in it. And what are the consequences for the increasingly toxic debate about asylum and immigration? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. There's a lot of politics happening, both domestically and internationally, this week. So we're going to start by talking about what's happening in the Middle East. Then we'll talk about the government's Rwanda bill, which passed its third reading in Parliament on Wednesday, bringing it one step closer to becoming law. On Monday, Rishi Sunak was in the House of Commons defending the UK's joint airstrikes with the US on Houthi targets, so-called, in Yemen. I do not take decisions on the use of force lightly. That's why I stress that this action was taken in self-defence. It was limited, not escalatory. It was a necessary and proportionate response to a direct threat to UK vessels and therefore to the UK itself. The Houthis, who are a militia group that controls most of Yemen and are financially backed by Iran, have said that for as long as Israel continues its assault on Gaza, they'll attack boats in the Red Sea. Um, There are a lot of players in this region, including obviously Iran and Saudi Arabia. To explain a bit more, Nikki Jafania joins us. She's a lawyer and researcher on Yemen and Bahrain with Human Rights Watch, and she's in Beirut. Nikki, tell me first of all, as you understand it, why the Houthis are doing this. They say that their actions are all about Israel-Gaza. Is that true? I can't say definitively that their actions are not in relation to Gaza. I think Yemenis have a very long history of pro-Palestine support, and I think they've been feeling deeply about the atrocities that are being that are being committed in Gaza at the moment. But I do think that the Houthis have many ulterior motives at the moment. The conflict in Yemen has been ongoing since 2014, when the Houthis took over Sana'a. And just in the last couple of years, it really has started to die down. And there have been there's been a lot of talk over the last few months of a potential ceasefire agreement between Saudi Arabia and the Houthis. But what that has meant for the Houthis is that they actually have had to be you know, governing their their territories. They currently control about 80%, 70 to 80% of the population of Yemen. And they've never fully had to govern before. They've They've been so focused on their war effort that they were able to ignore a lot of the massive problems that Yemenis face every day, including the lack of food, the lack of water. And so what you're left with is, you know, suddenly a population that is no longer fearing airstrikes from the Saudi UAE led coalition and is able to focus on you know, a lot of the daily frustrations and, and, and rights violations, not just frustrations, but rights violations that they face. Um, I think the Houthis in that regard are recognize that they will have far more support from their general population if they're supporting another war effort, particularly one in support of Palestine. And I think beyond that, it's also a way for them to gain more out of this out of this potential agreement with Saudi Arabia. I think Saudi is very eager to get out of the conflict. 
with them. And I think the more support that the Houthis are gaining regionally, which is absolutely the case with what, what they've been doing in the Red Sea, I think they're, they're, the Saudis are struggling to understand how to actually respond to this. And I think they would have to concede a lot more as Houthis to, to Houthi demands um, because of the support that the Houthis are receiving at the moment. You mentioned um, human rights and human expression um, a moment ago. Just tell us briefly what kind of a regime the Houthis are domestically. Yeah, I think one of the best examples of, of Houthi governance at the moment are, are you know, the ways in which they've dealt with Yemen since taking over Sana'a in 2014 is looking at the siege that they've held on Taiz, which is the third largest city in Yemen, since 2015. Um, you know, the Houthis have been going on and on about Israel's siege on Gaza, and yet they themselves have laid siege on, on Taiz. They don't allow in water, humanitarian aid, or food. And the, and the population of Taiz has been suffering for nine long years because of this. Um, we actually just released a report in December detailing the ways in which the Houthis specifically have blocked water from entering the city through the pipelines. Um, and, and I think that really is emblematic of a lot of other abuses that the Houthis um, have committed and are continuing to commit since, since really entering a, a governance role. Now, as we all know, they're allied with Iran, backed by Iran. Just give us a sense of how much um, influence Iran has on the Houthis and in what ways that influence plays out. Yeah, I think it's been pretty difficult over the last 10 years to really understand the extent to which Iran has influence over the Houthis. They certainly have a relationship. They certainly provide them with arms. Um, that has been detailed time and time again by the UN panel of experts on Yemen. Um, however, beyond that and beyond you know, certain levels of logistical support, um, certain levels of training, it's, it's really unclear how much of the decision making would be, could be possibly made by Iran. I think the Houthis are, at the end of the day, their own entity, and they are making decisions on their own, even if with the influence of Iran. You say that, but there is a bigger picture story here about what looks like an increasingly assertive Iran and what it's doing in the wider Middle East region. So on Tuesday, Iran launched a missile strike in the Kurdish region of Erbil in Iraq and northern Syria. Um, just on Wednesday, um, Iran has attacked what they call militant sites in Pakistan. There's a lot of commentary flying around in the UK about how the crisis in the Red Sea marks our passage into a, a new kind of geopolitical order in which Iran is much more of an important presence than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago. I think a lot of countries, uh, most certainly Iran, are really capitalizing on what's happening in Israel and Gaza at the moment and in Israel and Palestine more broadly. Um, I think they're using this as an opportunity to really consolidate their power further. They have groups around the region that they have influence over and relationships with, including Hezbollah and the Houthis, and have certainly been been using that relationship to see how far they can go at a time like this. Also, you know, beyond that, a lot of a lot of countries have also thought that they can get away with a lot of human rights violations and violations of the laws of armed conflict because the world's attention is on Gaza and Palestine. And give me, give, give me some other. That's interesting. Give me some other examples. I mean, for example, Israel itself has has bombed you know Damascus several times over in the in the last couple of months. Um, that has gotten no attention. Turkey has um, been you know committing mass violations within northeast Syria. That has gotten no attention. Um, and I think Iran probably thought that they could get away with the same thing. Um, but in terms of, you know, broader, broader regional dynamics, I think it really is 
it's tough to say. I think, you know, on the other hand, the US and the UK are also really strongly re-entering the region by starting to strike Yemen again. And so that also has a huge role to play in in how Iran might be responding. Right. This is this is a question I really want to ask you because we tend to see things here through the prism of UK politics and what UK politicians say uh, about this intervention and its likely impact. But um, I'm sure your answer will be much more satisfactory and enlightening than anything we've heard from people like that. What will this intervention do, do you think, in terms of its effects on the region? I think there's almost nothing good that can come out of a US-UK intervention into Yemen at the moment. The, the region, uh, and by the region I mean the Middle East, is tired to, to you know, say it as lightly as possible, of the US and the UK and other European countries coming into the region and starting wars and just bombing areas and eventually, in every single one of these wars, causing mass, mass civilian casualties. I don't, they still, to this day, have not been held accountable for the war crimes that they've been complicit in in Yemen. And that includes the UK too. The UK sold billions of dollars worth of arms to Saudi Arabia and to the UAE, even after a UK court ruling in 2021 or 2020 that ordered them to stop those sales because of the the complicity in, in potential war crimes. And so the fact that they haven't been held accountable, they never did anything to pay reparations to the many civilian casualties that were caused by their arms, um, doesn't really bode well for for any form of action in Yemen again. But you, you talked a moment ago about mass civilian casualties. So is that where you see this probably, possibly going? I have yet to see a, a war that has not produced civilian casualties, particularly wars that the US and the UK have been involved in in the last two decades in the Middle East. And so I, I sincerely hope that that's not where this is leading. And I sincerely hope that, you know, these parties can de-escalate and that it won't go further than what it already has. Um, but I think if things do continue to escalate, there's, there's, clear, there's almost no chance that these countries will avoid all civilian casualties. I, I think that's, it, they haven't proven a good track record of that in the past and they haven't proven a good track record of being held accountable either. As we all know. Right. Thank you so much for joining us. That was fascinating and enlightening. Thank you, Niku. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a somewhat fast-moving episode this week, and I'm now joined by Gavin Barwell, the Conservative peer and former Number 10 Chief of Staff to Theresa May. Hi, Gavin. Hi, how are you doing? I'm okay. Um, We've just been talking about the global picture as regards the Middle East, but I want to focus on things that have been or are being said in the UK a bit now. Um, The Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, as you doubtless know, made a wide-ranging speech on Monday where he said this. The era of the peace dividend is over. In five years' time, we could be looking at multiple theatres, including Russia, China, Iran and North Korea. Ask yourself, looking at today's conflicts across the world, is it more likely that that number grows or reduces? I suspect we all know the answer. It's likely to grow. So 2024 must mark an inflection point. Gavin, what did you make of that speech? I wonder, did you feel that that was a sort of important indication that the UK's global stance or position in foreign affairs is shifting? Yeah, it's not a cheery message, but I think the Defence Secretary is right in what he said. Um, I think we're in danger. We're now in a world where conflict between states has become 
normalized. We've got two wars, one in Europe, one in the Middle East underway. There's obviously a danger that others think this is a good opportunity when the world is distracted. Uh, and geopolitically, you know, we've got a huge election in the US coming up this year, which could lead to a significant shift in US foreign and defense policy. So I think he was right to, to sound the warning and to get everybody focused on the challenges that we face. And you're saying there effectively that if Donald Trump wins, this very sort of frightful, fragmenting, dangerous world which we're facing is going to get even more so, obviously. A lot of people see Trump as a sort of bellicose figure. The reverse is actually the case, right? He's deeply reluctant to deploy American armed force. When, you, when I met with him, when I was working for Theresa, he would talk very passionately about how wrong he thought Bush and Obama had been to spend American lives in the Middle East. So I think a Trump presidency is going to be a fairly isolationist US. We know we've heard what he's had to say about aid for Ukraine. I think there have to be real questions about his commitment to NATO. You might see some drawdown of US forces in Europe. Also questions about how he would approach US security guarantees to Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. So it's going to geopolitically, it would be a very significant shift in US foreign and defence posture. It'd be a complicated picture. But if, for example, the US um, backing or support for NATO weakens, that inevitably will make things feel more dangerous, right? Absolutely. And and, And and unpredictable. And a huge question for Europeans, the UK, the EU, other NATO European members, about whether they are willing to significantly increase their investment in collective defence, because the, the Russian threat isn't going to be immediate because the, the, the huge casualties the Russian army has taken in Ukraine. But you can bet your bottom dollar, John, that if Putin feels he's won in Ukraine, then once he is rearmed, he will go looking elsewhere. And so if we don't have the level of American commitment to European security that we do at the moment, there's a huge question there for European governments about how they are going to fill that gap. Let's talk uh, about what's happening in Yemen and the UK's involvement in those recent strikes against the Houthis, of which there may well be more. Um, Here's a question. With the UK's involvement in um, that action, it seems to me that we might still be living with the legacy of Tony Blair. There's a slight flavour of of the old idea of liberal interventionism here, or the idea that Britain is a country which is duty-bound frequently or occasionally to throw its weight around. And I wonder whether we talk about the ethics of actions like this enough. You know, all the talk so far has been of targets in Yemen, as if all this is very clean and clinical. Inevitably, it probably isn't. And I wonder if we were talking about targets elsewhere in the world, whether the conversation would be very different. You know, I wonder whether this shows you that lives in the Middle East are cheap compared to other parts of the world. I don't think that is the case from my own personal experience of dealing with these issues. You'll remember that when Theresa was Prime Minister, uh, the US, the UK and France made airstrikes against Syria after President Assad used chemical weapons against his own civilian population. And I can tell you from my experience in doing that, a lot of thought is given to two things. First of all, the legal basis for the action, which has to be one that is about protecting life and therefore deterring further aggression. And then you would, I think, be quite surprised about how tightly defined how much action you can take is at that point. Because what the lawyers say to you is that you've got to do enough that it is a credible deterrent to the people that you are trying to deter from using force, but not so much that it would prove escalatory. And I think what was noticeable about those strikes against Yemen is there was no attempt at all to go after the leadership of the Houthis, 
the attacks were focused on radar, on storage, on the weapons themselves. I don't know this for a fact, John, but it would not surprise me at all if they had been given a very short period of warning of the targets so that they could remove people from them without giving them the time to remove the actual equipment that we were trying to destroy. So I hope that answer, I mean, I can't tell you, I wasn't in the room, obviously, for these attacks, but I know that when we took action in Syria, very significant care was taken to try and avoid the loss of human life. Yeah, you say that. Obviously, we both know that we're only 20 years away from the Iraq war, and and those limits definitely didn't apply there. So you can see why I ask you the question. I can see that. And I think you are entirely right to say that inevitably we view any military action through the prisms of the mistakes that we made in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we should. It's right that that people should express that concern and scepticism. But I think this is a very different thing that we are doing here than we tried to do there. And I think inevitably, we, the US, other countries cannot allow commercial shipping, often with no connection at all to Israel, to be targeted in this way. And we shouldn't forget there are lives of sailors on those vessels that are being put in danger by what the Houthis were doing. You mentioned Israel-Gaza a moment ago, inevitably. I want to ask you how you feel about that, in the sense that it seems to me that it's unquestionable now that Israel is pursuing its war against Hamas as it sees it to the absolute extremes. There's a a clear, awful humanitarian catastrophe in front of us, which is not just now about 20,000 dead. It's also about the arrival of famine in Gaza and so on. And yet the government, in common with most Western governments, sort of sounds notes of unease from time to time. I know David Cameron is doing is, has been doing that. But they always fall well short of calling on Israel to stop. A, how do you feel about that? And B, do you think that'll change? So there's two things that I would say in response to that. There was something President Biden said a few weeks ago that really struck a chord with me, where he talked about the US experience in the wake of 9-11. And he said that the United States responded to 9-11 with rage. And that that rage was understandable, given what had happened, but that it was actually counterproductive. And he warned Israel of the risk of doing the same thing. And that really struck a chord with me. I think if that had been our country that had been subject to the attack on 7th of October, we would be enraged at what had happened. And we should be enraged that it happened to innocent Israeli civilians. But we should equally be enraged at the loss of innocent civilian life in Gaza. But what do we do, therefore? Doesn't there come a point where you say Israel has to stop? Well, so I think action of the intensity that we've seen has to stop. What I think is very difficult is to say Israel cannot try and continue to pursue the people responsible or try and free the hostages, although I think there are real questions about whether a diplomatic route might be more successful at freeing those hostages. But I think we should be saying that military action of the intensity that we are seeing with the level of civilian casualties that go goes with that should not be carrying okay that's interesting right let's talk about the rwanda bill we're recording this episode on wednesday afternoon mps are currently debating the bill whether it passes or not i will say this this is my perspective this is toxic legislation in terms of what it says about the ethics of policy on refugees but also the logic behind this legislation this isn't talked about very much the idea that deportation to an african country is used as a deterrent you know if you come here, we'll send you to an African country. That's pretty horrible logic. It borders on the racist, in my opinion. So there's that for a start. And then also, I wonder, therefore, what the legislation 
and this uh, huge seething debate and chaos surrounding it says about the struggle for the soul of the Conservative Party, which, as we both know, it seems to me, has taken place between right-wing populists, broadly speaking, with a few Trussites maybe involved, and one-nationers, right? You spend half your life on Twitter, it seems to me, arguing with hardline <laughs> Conservatives these days about <laughs> issues like this. I haven't asked you this. First of all, how do you feel about the Rwanda legislation? So you sound like, like my wife criticising me for spending half my life on Twitter. Um, I spend half my life on Twitter. So X, we must say X, formerly yeah. known as Twitter. Yes, yeah. it's like Prince, the pop star formerly known as Prince. So like, I, I think there are two issues here. Right? There's a there's a moral issue, as you say, about whether this policy is justifiable. And I don't like the policy, and I don't think the government should be pursuing it. There's also a kind of political strategy question where I think it's inexplicable to me that the government, the prime minister, would have chosen to give a promise to stop the boats. Because the reality of the world that we live in is that it is going to be impossible to stop anybody from around the world trying to come to the United Kingdom, whatever legislation you pass, whatever you do, both for those who are who feel strongly about this issue and for people like yourself who are concerned about the tenor of our debate, we should yeah. know this is not a uniquely British problem. Right? Look at the debate in the US at the moment about the US-Mexico border. Look at the debates in the EU about the crossings uh, through the Western Balkans and through the Mediterranean. But if Rishi Sunak had said, I'm going to reduce the numbers of people arriving by these small boats, he would be able at the moment to claim success. He's brought the numbers down by about a third, and he's done it with good, sensible policies, in particular, the return deal that he did with Albania, closer cooperation with the French uh, on policing and trying to tackle these criminal gangs, and efforts to try and reduce the backlog here in the UK, which acts as a major incentive for people to come here because if you think it's going to be years before you ever get your case made, then by that point, you've put down roots and you've got a good chance to stay. So he's doing lots of sensible good things that the opposition, I suspect, would agree with. But all of that is being overshadowed. He's not getting any credit for it because the Tory party is running around saying, unless we get this Rwanda policy through, we're doomed. Yeah, so the two, two things arise from that. Firstly, this may be another example of the fact that Rishi Sunak isn't very good at politics. That's one thing. But secondly, um, it shows that he has these very, very hardline populist uh, elements of the Conservative Party breathing down his neck, and he's very, very scared of them. And the noise they're making, not just about this specific policy, but a sort of vision of Britain and its place in the world around it, are very, very hardline and toxic. Robert Jenrick, a former Tory minister, or a matter of months ago, you'd have just seen as a sort of slightly Conservative MP who, who, who bent with the Conservative wind. He, has, as some people see it, has gone tonto. And the arguments that he's been making of late about the sort of wider picture around this policy, I think are quite shocking. Let's hear a bit of audio of Robert Jenrick being interviewed. And we've got to make the argument that this is socially and culturally harmful to the country. It does nothing for our economy. It doesn't help GDP per capita, which is what I care about. I want working people in this country to be better off. I hear that, Gavin. And I detect the ghost of Enoch Powell, for a start, the famously racist, hardline, former Conservative MP, long dead. But also, I wonder if the Conservative Party or elements of it are getting dangerously close to what I used to hear from people like the BNP. When you're talking about immigration threatening the, the country socially and culturally, you're in a very bad place, aren't you? So look, I, I don't like that rhetoric at all. You know, anyone, if you work for any business in the country at the moment, they will tell you that the labour market is incredibly tight, that they are really struggling to find people to fill the jobs that we need if we're going to grow our economy. Although I think you know where I come from on this issue, I just want to put the counterpoint a little bit, which I think is interesting, 
which is I think if Robert, if you were talking directly to Robert, he would make two points to you, both of which have some force, which is one that lots of people, there is, there is a lot of concern about the level of migration in this country, um, fairly broad-based among the population and a feeling that politicians haven't listened to that or addressed that. And it is yeah. dangerous for our democracy not to do so. And secondly, I think you and I would probably both agree that if, you, if, if we talked about Robert a year ago, we wouldn't have seen him as part of the kind of populist right wing of the Conservative Party. So one of the things he is saying is that his experience of being immigration minister has shifted his view on this issue. Um, now, look, and I would say your view has shifted because you're aware that the Conservative Party is likely to lose the next election and you want to ally yourself with the elements you think might be the right. winners. OK, so so and maybe that I don't know. Right. I can't look into his mind. And maybe there's some truth in both. <laughs> but of forgive those me things. being cynical, Gavin, but you know what I mean. No, But maybe there's some truth in both of those things. To me, I totally agree with what you've said about the rhetoric and about the, the principal argument attacking the old idea that immigration has not been any good for the country. I'm, I find that argument both factually wrong and morally wrong. But I also have to recognise as someone who is a liberal and pro-immigration that there is public concern about this issue, that the net migration levels that Boris Johnson has given us of 600,000 odd a year, I don't think are sustainable. So we've got to find a way of addressing the public concern, but in a way that doesn't fundamentally change the kind of country that we are. And that to me is the sort of one nation conservative position on yeah that. just just quickly my, my position on that would be that it's impossible to have a sane non-toxic uh, conversation about immigration in the midst of a housing crisis as bad as the uk's and underfunded public services and regional inequalities and all the things that distort that conversation but anyway let's just move on to the the big question are you going to vote for this bill and there's an associated question how you see this bill faring in the House of Lords? So I'm so I'm on a leave of absence from the House of Lords, so I won't get to vote on it one way or another. But I won't, to the answer to your question but if you is, did, if you did, I'm not, I'm not opposed to some legislation in this space, but I would probably support some amendments that would try and tone down the legislation from where it is at the moment. If I were a member of the House of Lords, hypothetically. But would that still countenance refugees being sent to Rwanda? Well, that that's the government policy, and the legislation isn't going to change that one way or the other. Uh, what what I think is reasonable is to look at the way some of these processes work. I'm not against the government in principle legislating in this space. What I don't think you can do is just pass a bill that says Rwanda is a safe country. You know, what, what are we going to have next? We're going to pass legislation saying that Crystal Palace are the football league champions. Oh yeah, that, well, that's when we get into, that's when we get into the realms of the, tr of the truly surreal. As you know, there were asylum seekers we accepted from Rwanda in the last yeah. year or so, right? right. But the, well, I think the, the answer, the more important answer to your question, rather than the hypothetical of what I might do, is what do I think the Lords will do? And I suspect the Lords will not reject the bill outright, but it will try and put some safeguards in it, similar to the kinds of amendments that we've seen Robert Buckland table in the House of Commons, I would guess. Right, anyway, thanks for joining us, Gavin. A pleasure. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a break now. Later when we come back, we'll be joined by Pippa Kreera, The Guardian's political editor, to hear about the government's Rwanda vote. Hello there, Jonathan Friedland here, host of The Guardian's Politics Weekly America podcast. I'm heading to New Hampshire, where I'll be hosting three special editions of the podcast covering the primary election that's happening there. Starting this Friday, the 19th of January, I'll be driving around the Granite State, queuing up for campaign rallies, joining residents at town hall meetings, speaking to voters and analysing those all-important results on election night 
on the 23rd. Will Donald Trump emerge victorious as expected? Or can Nikki Haley or even Ron DeSantis bring about the first shock political upset of 2024? Listen to Politics Weekly America from this Friday, 19th of January, wherever you get your podcasts. It's now coming up to 10pm. The vote in the Commons on the third reading of the Rwanda Bill has just happened. Pippa is in Westminster to fill us in on what exactly has gone on or not gone on and what it means. So tell us, first of all, what the result was. Well, the result in this, you know, I should do a drum roll or something, shouldn't I? Uh, the result was that uh, the legislation, the key flagship Rwanda Bill, passed by 320 votes to 276, which means that the government got its bill through with a majority of 44, which is a, you know, it's a decent, chunky majority. Okay, and how many rebels were there who, who on the Tory side, voted against it? I, I feel I should have asked you before the vote, John, to predict how many you thought there might be. We've been doing it in the office, and as the day's gone on, the number has fallen lower and lower and lower and lower because there was a big meeting just before all the voting started on the amendments earlier this evening in which about 45 of the hardline Tory rebels gathered together to decide what to do. And it was quite clear, I mean, to be fair, it's been quite clear all day and indeed yesterday as well, that it didn't look like that they that they had the numbers, that they wanted to sort of register their opposition to the bill, that they want to think it should be more hard line by you know, trying to get through amendments. Um, but when it came to the final vote, that very few of them would actually uh, vote against this flagship bit of legislation. And so it turned out just 11 Tory MPs voted against it and a further 18 abstained, although I should add about those that some of those may have been off for other reasons. Um, and also, interestingly, the abstentions were from both wings of the party. OK, let's talk about the Tories who voted against the hardline rebels. Are there any, I'm sure there are, striking names among the 11? They're pretty notable names. I mean, the biggest one is probably Suella Braverman, the former Home Secretary, who since she quit or was forced to quit, um, has been a thorn in Rishi Sunak's side, uh, trying to discredit his his attempts, his plans for um, this legislation, criticising every turn, even drawing up um, with colleagues an alternative piece of legislation that she said that the, the government should pursue. Um, and being behind a lot of the pushes to try and, uh, you know, to try and bring this uh, legislation down. But also, I, I should quickly add, it feels very much like she wasn't motivated just by the principle of making the bill better in her view, but also by causing as much damage to Rishi Sunak himself as possible. I can hear the bells in the middle distance. <laughs> uh, two or three, or one or two even, other striking names on the list? Robert Jenrick? So presumably. Robert Jenrick was also there. He, of course, was the immigration minister who quit over the Rwanda plan, who seems to have performed this remarkable conversion from being sort of like a, a fairly moderate, um, you know, somebody, his nickname in this place was Robert Generic for a long time. Um, and he's recast himself as this hardline right winger, which is all a bit odd, but he has been very much across all the technical detail and behind some of the authoring of some of these amendments, which MPs voted on in the Commons. Another big name is Simon Clark, who you, if you cast your mind back to that illustrious period of which Liz Truss was um, Prime Minister, 
Minister. He was one of her key lieutenants. Uh, he voted against the legislation. And then some of the names that you might expect, the sort of old, hardcore Tory right of Marc Francois and Bill Cash, and the newer hardcore Tory right of people like Danny Kruger and Miriam Cates. So there's a, you know, there's a host of recognisable names if people follow politics um, amongst those amongst those rebels. Um, and you know, none of them, are, none of them, I have to say, are particularly surprising. The biggest surprise, of course, is that the number's not higher. And their position was the most hardline of all hardline options, in the sense that, uh, for want of their version of the Rwanda bill, their vote tells you that they'd rather have no Rwanda scheme at all. <laughs> yeah, although I think it also tells you that they don't think much of Rishi Sunak. I mean, yeah. I think the realization that those forty-five MPs, those rebels, came to in that meeting, or those potential potential rebels, I should say was that if they collapse the bill, they risk collapsing the government. I mean, the, the whips were the whips and the government and officials, I mean, people I've been speaking to since last week have been actually quite calm. There hasn't been that sense of panic that there was ahead of the second reading vote before Christmas. And and it was notable that the, the whips hadn't been going around MPs and saying, look, this is a confidence issue. We're going to make this a confidence issue. You know, if, if you vote against it, the Prime Minister will have to go. Because they, I think, realised early on, the rebels didn't have the numbers, and they didn't have to put the Prime Minister in that position. However, even if they hadn't formally made it a confidence vote, had it fallen, I mean, this is Rishi Sunak's flagship legislation, it would have been hugely problematic for the government and it would have pushed him into a very difficult position, potentially um, triggered some sort of confidence vote in him, a leadership contest. And then, of course, you know, we've all seen, we've had so many different Tory leaders, prime ministers over the last couple of years, it would have had to have led to an immediate election. And I think lots of MPs kind of woke up and smelt the coffee. They didn't want an election right now. They knew they'd lose it or thought they probably would lose it, lose their seats, certainly. Um, so they decided that for now they would uh, they would stay on side rather than walking through the division lobbies with the Labour Party in an election year. Okay, let's rattle through a couple of relevant questions here. What will happen to the issues that the rebels say they're concerned about? Crucially, the role of those demonised judges in Strasbourg. And there's an associated question here. It's the same, I mean, to some extent, it's the same question. What's going to happen in the Lords, do you think? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, the government wasn't willing to make concessions to the Tory right on that issue of the Strasbourg judges. But as part of the legislation, they had said that it would be up to ministers in a handful of cases to decide whether to accept the injunctions, the so-called pyjama injunctions or Rule 39, handed down by Strasbourg, which could potentially stop flights from taking off. And uh, there'd been sort of questions over the legality of that. The, I think the understanding was that Victoria Prentice, the Attorney General, said that that would be okay as long as it was a very small number of flights. But um, in order to convince the rebels, they offered a sweetener, so not a concession in legislation, which was updating government guidance, Home Office guidance, which meant that uh, civil servants, so Home Office staff, had to do what they were told by ministers if Strasbourg handed down a Rule 39, handed down an injunction. And civil service unions were obviously furious about this and said that it, yeah. it would mean that senior mandarins and border for staff would have to choose between breaking international law, disobeying the instructions of their minister or resigning. So potentially putting them in a very awkward position. So that row, I think, will continue. That's not over yet. And 
of course, the legislation, as you rightly say, now goes to the House of Lords. So this this fight isn't, this parliamentary battle isn't over yet. The likelihood is, is that the Lords over the next couple of months will try and, in their view, tidy up the bill. They'll make sure it's more compatible with international law. They'll try and close some of what they regard as the loopholes. They'll amend it and they'll throw it back to the Commons. And, you know, I think in most cases, the government will try and reject their amendments because they've, they've plotted what they feel is a fine line between the right and the left of their party that they can more or less accept. And that anything which sort of pushes it one way, too far one way or the other, could end up with a bigger rebellion. But there's only so many times the House of Lords can come back with changes, three maximum really. So it probably will eventually go through in some form or another. Now, you and I both know that the malcontents, the rebels who are very cross about, um, A, the drawbacks as they see it of this legislation, but also Rishi Sunak, they number much more than the 11 that ultimately rebel against the third reading. The story of the rebellions against the amendments tells you that, you know, there's at least sort of 60, if not more of those people. What's going to happen to that, those factions of the Tory party and those people, do you think, as um, this story proceeds? Not much. I think that they will continue to grumble and they'll continue to snipe against Sunak and some of his policies. But ultimately, what I think tonight has shown is they realise that uh, they've got to stick with him till the election. That the sort of the notion of having another leadership contest and having somebody as leader that they might prefer, whether it's Suella Braverman or Kami Badenoch, or even this idea that Boris Johnson could somehow be found a safe seat and be allowed back into Parliament, is absolutely for the birds. And when even senior right wing figures like Jacob Bruce Mogg say, look, it'd be electoral suicide if we had another leadership contest and the British people just wouldn't forgive them, I think they're right. So I think there'll be a lot of grumbling. There'll be attempts, of course, to overturn Lord's amendments and the you know, there'll be more parliamentary battles about this. But I think ultimately, I wouldn't go quite so far as to say they're a spent force, but they are no longer the sort of powerful block that they might have been earlier in the parliament precisely because it's their jobs on the line too if they bring down Rishi Sunak. Talking of whom, he emerges from this very sort of torrid two or three days with even more damage, doesn't he? In the sense that there have been resignations about this. It's further proof that he's not popular among large swathes of the Conservative Party in parliament and certainly the Conservative Party outside parliament, the sort of wider Tory family that feels in its own somewhat awful way very strongly about these issues. So, I mean, that was my sense watching this through the last two or three days is, God, just this is just proof that we're now locked into this cycle of chaos, you know, some murmur about some new plan for Rishi Sunak's recovery, followed by more chaos, followed by another couple of murmurs. He makes another video, does another couple <laughs> of factory visits, more chaos, and on it goes till November. I think it's quite something that people in Downing Street tonight will be regarding this as a success <laughs> because they've got the legislation through. If, though, they were to go out to, you know, local high streets right across the country and ask people that follow the news what the last few days has looked like, they wouldn't necessarily regard it as quite so much of a success because the impression from the outside is of a divided end of days party that can't agree on anything, that falls out over everything, that is led by somebody that can't unite them even in an election year. And that grumbling that and those sort of eruptions of chaos which sort of happen every, you know, few days at the moment, just undermines his authority further. And I think the public see that. The public get that, right? They do. 
I think the public has a sense that this is going to go on for some time mm. as well. God help at us. Least right, till, at least till the autumn, me. <laughs> it's going to be a very, very long 2024, isn't it? Thanks for joining us. Thanks <laughs> for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to find out more about the current situation in Israel and Gaza, Tuesday's Today in Focus podcast looked at the South African genocide case against Israel and whether it could succeed. Plus, as you'll have heard, our sister podcast, Politics Weekly America, will be following the Republican primary in New Hampshire. Jonathan Friedland is out there now. There'll be new episodes on Friday and Monday. And of course, they'll be covering the results as soon as they emerge next week. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Kakutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 